Welcome to Think Free with Stephen and Daniel, two brothers breaking down ideas and ways of thinking about this thing we call life. Unlock your mind to explore more than you ever thought possible. Think Free. So did you get a chance to read some some articles about the latest mm-hmm. splash that global warming's made? I did, yeah. Yeah, so what stuck out to me, uh, I came across an article in a different forum that said that 2023 is going to be the hottest year on record. And that stuck out to me for a couple of reasons. I, I kind of like engaging in the global warming debate, but I also get triggered by it too when I feel like there's the conversation is happening in a way that isn't helpful, like a lot of things. And so it stuck out to me that they were making a pronouncement. It was, I think, November 8th. They were making a pronouncement at that point in the year that the year is going to be the hottest year on record. My brain started going, well, the year's not over yet, and we're probably not going to have you know, an Arctic front that comes through and totally throws off the numbers. But I wanted to know what they were using to measure that. What is it, What does it mean to be the hottest year on record? Does that mean the average temperature across the globe and all the places that it's measured has been hotter than it's ever been before? Uh, does that mean we hit a high somewhere in the earth or all the highs all over the earth were higher than they've ever been? Like, what's the metric they're using? What's the way that they're making that determination? Because technically, if it's only November 8th, you can't say it's been the hottest year on record if there's still, I don't know, 50 days left or something like that. Would you say that your motivation to finding out the why in that situation is because of that the fact that you disagree with their assumption and solutions to resolve it getting so hot? Like, what's the motivation behind the why? Yeah, it's a good question. Because I want to approach any problem, especially a problem as complicated and as big as climate change, with as accurate a data as possible and with realistic information that doesn't cause what I seem to think is often inflammatory or emotional responses. And that the way that that article was structured seemed to indicate to me, like, we need to panic. We need to react. This is something that is designed to agitate people or, or hit them at an emotional level and stir them to action, which may or may not be rational if it's a clickbait, inflammatory language, something like mm-hmm. that. So it's not that I disagreed with the fact that it may actually be so. I just thought it was presumptuous or premature maybe to make that kind of pronouncement. Well, I get that. I guess I was going with what was the motivation between the why of why you even needed to do the research to look into it. Like I could see having a stance or a viewpoint from that position, but I just wanted to kind of get inside of your head what was motivating for you once you found that information out? What was that going to do? for you is that going to be able to then you be able to prove hey so this wasn't accurate Mm -hmm. we don't need to panic we don't need to do any of these measures then that they're saying that we need to do to make earth cooler yeah Uh, or was it you thinking they were had some motivation or just curiosity or why this topic it was yeah that's a few different reasons i mean being accurate i think is important and and we all know there's a lot of clickbait out there of things that are said in a certain way to get you to react to it because it's said extremely. Um, I also wanted to know what measures are used to make those kind of pronouncements. How do we factor this in? And does the way that data is interpreted match the solutions that are proposed? And so if, if there's a conclusion that's reached based on 
a misinterpretation of data and then solutions are proposed based on those conclusions, we might be heading in the wrong direction or we might be making changes we don't need to make. We might be paying costs that aren't necessary because the data was interpreted incorrectly in the first place. You know, you and I being in, in real estate, we look at numbers all the time and we're looking at how much houses are selling for, what's the price of a house going for. And so what are the numbers compared to last year? And so I kind of was using that similar framework of thinking about it. We could say that house prices are higher than they were last year. We could mean a lot of different things by that. We could mean in a particular price point. We could mean in a particular area. We could mean across the whole region. We could mean nationally. Uh, we could also mean at the average price point. We could mean the median price point. We could mean year to date. And so there's just a lot of different ways that it could be broken down. And I thought it's probably helpful if we're going to talk about real solutions to a complicated problem if we all know what we're talking about when we say hottest year on record. Mm-hmm. And if we're making that declaration before the year's even finished, then that raised a red flag for me because I know with house prices or football statistics or anything else like that, if you say a thing has happened before it's over, it needs to be mathematically impossible for that to change before the thing ends. And so that's where I was thinking, well, if we've still got 50 days left, technically we could potentially lower our overall average temperature. And would that put us in a, in a realm where we're no longer the hottest year on record? And if that's the case, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean we don't need to make changes to our lifestyle. It just might mean that the inflammatory rhetoric that's being thrown around to hope to incite people to make those changes is not helpful or overblown or could actually have an, a negative impact because it could lower the integrity of the people that want to see those changes. So mm-hmm. let's find out what's going on. And then just curiosity. Yeah. How do people react to this? What do they use for the numbers? All that to say, once I got past the original article that said very clearly 2023 is going to be the warmest year on record, there was a lot of other articles from different organizations, which often happens when a story breaks, a lot of different places pick up the same story. And pretty much everybody else changed to be 2023 virtually certain to be the warmest year on record. Another article says it's already on track to be the hottest year ever. Add another heat record to the pile. Earth is historically warming up. 2023 will likely be the warmest year on record. 2023 likely hottest in 125,000 years. And so all the other articles, headlines, use words like likely and most likely Mm -hmm. and headed towards 99% chance, virtually certain 2023 will be the warmest year on record. Um, So once I started seeing that there was just literally one news outlet that called it with certainty uh, and everybody else was at least acknowledging that it wasn't a completely done deal. Then I wasn't as adamant about, Hey, this is misreporting or something. Mm, because it, was, mm-hmm. it was just one source. It wasn't yeah. like everybody. So yeah, another thing would be, I guess, presidential race, you know, when they call different States for a president or, and then one news organization calls the whole election for one candidate, even though all the polling data isn't in yet. Right. So that's what it felt huh. like. It was just a chance to make sure that we're really talking about it accurately. Yeah. I think that's good. And it, most of the time there's um, a lot of the conversations are tied around the agenda of what needs to happen to resolve it. Almost like they're kind of coming up with a solution and they're needing to try to find a problem. So it's like wanting to move people to electric mm-hmm. cars. And so you'll have sometimes people that are wanting to push the electric car revolution that then start talking about how fossil fuels are the reason that the, it's getting hotter in here and what's doing all of this yeah. carbon 
I think what we talk about a lot, like if they're having the same conversation, are they just trying to come up with the data and the facts, state what's happening? Okay, let's try to find out uh, maybe why that's happening. What's the recourse of that actually happening? If it does get hotter, is this something that uh, is being caused? What rate do we think it's, I mean, there's yeah. a lot. A lot of things to factor in. And of course, what impact does switching to electric cars have mm-hmm. on that environment? Is it automatically a solution? Is it a you know, better one? Maybe it's a, a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I find that this debate, like a lot of them, it tends to polarize people, especially when they're, they're only talking about the talking points of either side of being maybe somebody would say climate deniers or global warming deniers or use a pejorative on the other side to say they're global warming fanatic or something like that, that they, the two sides see each other as opposed to each other or as having different agendas or different worldviews or that sort of thing. And I find myself a little bit more aligned with those who are, maybe I would say a global warming skeptic. And I don't think that's enough reason to not be a responsible human and take environmental action. On the other hand, it stands out to me when I see articles like that, that seem to be alarmist, that seem to be just trying to get people activated to respond out of emotion instead of appealing to reason, which is something that moves me. And often the case isn't made because it seems to be a foregone conclusion that we all understand that this is a dire situation. If we don't do something quickly and urgently that we're all going to suffer And I don't know if I'm convinced that that's the case. That's probably where my reluctance or my hesitation comes from. And if it was the case, I don't know if it's my job to care. I don't know if if it's a moral obligation to prevent or to stop or to change the climate warming, which is possibly an inland privilege (laughs) because we're not on the coast. We don't live near it. I just think about all the, the cycles that we seem to believe the earth has gone through. We don't have hard evidence for, but... To the best of our knowledge, the Earth has not ever been one constant temperature. It's varied wildly over its lifespan, even before humans had an impact on it. And if it is going through another change, another variation, I don't know that there's a moral obligation to preserve it as it is. And so that doesn't mean I'm necessarily denying that global warming is happening or that even humans are contributing to it. I just, I'm not convinced that we have a moral obligation to stop it or to change it because of the potential suffering it could cause or is causing. Is that exclusive to the fact of whether or not we are causing it? Like, is that exclusively tied to regardless of that fact? Well, like if, if we are causing it to get warmer, right, faster and at a different time or rate or a flow than what it normally would do if we weren't doing quote unquote extra human things, mm-hmm. Just like when you move one endangered animal from one area to the other, then they take over that next area because they weren't ever really supposed to be. Are you also saying that then you don't feel that it's your responsibility to do anything? If I understand it correctly, if I was to be shown that humans are indisputably contributing to global warming and that by taking certain actions, we could reverse that or slow it down or change it. I don't know that we have a moral obligation to do that for two reasons. The first one is because of the subjectivity of morality and things like we've talked about with stories and and games that we play. That's a choice. And there's a thing called externalities and unintended consequences that are impossible to accurately predict. And so we'd have to first determine a measure of what the value or the benefit that we would look to achieve. Let's say we choose uh, reduce human suffering. That seems like a pretty easy one. If we could take steps as a species to slow or reverse or or pause global warming, 
biggest value in that would be to reduce human suffering or to stop it from getting worse, to stop the tornadoes, the tsunamis, the coastlines disappearing, the spread of the uh, deserts in the Sahara, all those things that we attribute to global warming, the, the melting of the polar ice caps, all these things that are deemed to cause human suffering. However, we can't know for sure, we can't measure, and it's even very hard to predict what amount of human suffering would be caused by making the proposed changes. We just don't know if we reduced our carbon emissions by X amount, what impact might that have for poor people who depend on those carbon emissions to get food, to get water, to get other needed life-saving resources. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that the amount of change that's proposed by some people is going to have externalities. It's going to have unintended consequences, and those unintended consequences will cause human suffering. And we don't know to what degree. We don't know which is worse. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about weighing, making those changes. So that assumes that there is some morality in reducing human suffering. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's a given that I'm, that I'm taking. But even with that, I don't know. I don't, I don't have enough conviction to say the gains that we will make, the benefit, the utilitarian benefit of slowing down warming will far outweigh any cost, even if that cost is also human suffering. Including human suffering of the possible extinction of the human race and other people not being able to experience this thing that we called life going forward, i.e. Our, yeah. our children and our children's children. Yeah, yeah. If we wanted to assume, which I think is an assumption, if we wanted to assume that without slowing down global warming, our race is going to go extinct within a certain amount of time, even if we assume that that's going to happen, I don't necessarily know that I can find a moral reason to say that we are obligated to prevent that. I'm sure there's a biological imperative. I'm sure there's a, an impulse that we have baked into us, like we've talked about before, for our legacy to persist or for uh-huh. our kids to go on. Uh, but if I zoom out far enough, do we owe it to our children's children's children or great-great-great-great-grandchildren to go to Mars or to explore extraplanetary life so that we have another planet in case this one craps out? I don't know. I, I know a lot of people feel like that's just, well, of course, that's what you do. Um, I've just never been convinced that we're responsible for that, That's that we're morally expected or that that's something that humans have to do or should do. How about you? Do you have a sense of moral obligation in any, any of those realms? Not quite sure I've ever broken it down that far before. <laughs> Welcome to Think Free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um moral obligation would just be based off of the the game and the rules mm-hmm. that you've set up and that you're playing. So yeah, I would think that if you were had a high enough motivation for wanting to have any type of legacy, mm. even the most zoomed out level of just the human race continuing to exist, that there would be just some natural morality for feeling that that would be at some degree, some level of um, your responsibility, mm. whether it's recycling when you're putting the items in the right can or something like that. So that would be what I would, where I would think that it would be, it would be if you had enough motivation behind wanting to have a legacy of, mm-hmm. of the human race existing. If you find no value in your life where you're currently at, I would have thought or thinking, okay, I could see how you wouldn't, care if people before you continue doing good or healthy things or they messed up and then you just didn't have the opportunity to exist. Mm -hmm. 
do you say that you come from are coming from that position because you're not wanting to be burdened by what the future looks like and is trying to control it as far as we're here, we're, we're on this thing called earth doing this thing called life and it just is ebbs and flows and however it is, I can't be attached to different things. It's a little nihilistic. Yes, it is uh, kind of a, what's the point of any of it. It's all made up and what we make it to be. So we couldn't care about global warming and or the persistence of the species and legacy and leaving something for our great, great, great grandchildren if we want to. And that falls into the same category as making sure that you appease the God that you worship or make your parents proud or uh, build wealth for your kids to inherit when you die. So I kind of put it in that same class of it's all made up, which is very nihilistic. None of it matters. So you get to pick what, what matters. And if some people want to pick that as something that matters, I'm not here to talk anybody out of that. I just don't know that yeah. it's uh, something that I've ever felt any kind of attachment to. I think it's great because like I was saying, that was where I was thinking that mm. someone would have to be coming from or if they were coming from this position that, that they would be thinking that way. So I think yeah. it was even helpful for me just to hear that I know that you do from our past conversations on talking about legacy, you do have certain aspects as far as legacy that you right. want to hold. And my viewpoint up until now was that, well, if you had that, then you would just kind of inherently feel the need to do your part, right. quote unquote, your part right. to help the the climate. So to see from your perspective that you do kind of want to have a, the legacy portion, but at the same time, don't feel that morally obligated responsibility to stop the suffering or non-existent of human mankind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I back up a little bit because we split off in our conversation and assumed for a moment that the climate continuing to warm would eventually lead to the destruction of the human race. Right. And not saying that it, that it will, right. But that it is a position that people take. It is. It yeah. is. I agree. And so I just wanted to clarify with that assumption. I think if I felt that, then I might answer this all differently. If I felt in my bones, in my body, if there was some sort of emotional response to the fact that this is going to lead to the annihilation of man, then I might answer that a little differently for now. For now, it's all theoretical because right. I don't have that feeling. Well, and I guess I was asking that originally because then it wouldn't matter in this hypothetical situation that we're talking about for you then to be shown any quote unquote evidence or any scientific or any data, because whether we are creating the problem or we're not creating the problem is not the thing for you because it doesn't matter because you don't feel like you have a moral, anybody, any of us have a moral responsibility to resolve it if we were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's accurate to a point. As long as I'm in my head, I'm definitely going to be scrutinizing the data very carefully. I'm not going to be unlikely to assume anything or give a pass or read an article that says 2023 is going to be the hottest year in record without going, wait, hey, how do you get to that conclusion? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Hottest year and the year is not over yet. So I think as long as I'm in my head, I'm going to be a lot more skeptical of the information. I might eventually be shown enough data to come to a conclusion that says, yeah, it is very likely that this could lead to the extinction of the human race. And then if I made that conclusion, it would have to, I think, translate from the head to, to the body or to the heart in a way of feeling it to cause any kind of reaction. Cause as we know, logic makes you think and feelings make you act. <laughs> Emotion makes you act. If you told me that there was an asteroid headed towards the earth and there was no debate that it was coming and 
which is funny because Netflix did that a parable movie about don't look up. I think it was where mm. mm-hmm. scientists were saying that an asteroid was plummeting towards earth and everybody just pretended it wasn't happening. It was a metaphor for this exact topic oh, okay. of global warming. However, I think if, if I was in that scenario, I can feel in my body that that imminent demise of a week, two weeks, a month, whatever it would be tomorrow. I think that sense of urgency would elicit a desire to change. If there was anything I could do, I would feel like, oh my gosh, we got to do something. We got to change something somewhat for myself, somewhat for my posterity. So it could be something as simple as the complicatedness, the vagueness, the confusion that's out there surrounding this topic Mm -hmm. makes it hard for anything to really anchor emotionally, for anything to really stick, for there to be potentials, for there to be other explanations, for there to be, I don't want to say denying in a sense of like head in the sand, nothing's happening, nothing's going wrong. It's just there isn't a lot of conversation around um, what I might consider more reasonable approaches that can slow it down without some of these other negative consequences, these other costs. With your tendency in some areas to have the nihilism mm-hmm. thought process, you must not have gotten nihilism as far as looking into investigating things because it's still intrigued you enough to, <laughs> is it, would you say that more of this has been just because it's been articles and things that have just been in your face or like you've been noticing them? Uh, or was it just that one article and it just kind of twisted you wrong a little bit as far as pushing your buttons? Yeah, um, it's definitely a game I want to play, which is to expose what I think is alarmist propaganda around okay. Okay. end of the world type stuff. And so I think if there were religious people out there saying that, you know, you better repent and get right with God because Jesus is coming back very soon. And if we don't, then we're going to get cast into hell and there's going to be, you know, just a terrible, terrible epoch of the reign of Satan on the earth. Unless we do something very quickly, I'd probably want to push back on some of that as well. Some of that rhetoric as well. There wouldn't be really any science to criticize though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So when it comes to this, I I don't know. I just feel like for as big of a deal, it is as complicated as, as traumatic as a topic, as impactful, like what, what else could be bigger? Mm-hmm. The whole planet's in peril. The way that the data is interpreted and disseminated feels irresponsible to mm-hmm. me. Again, I'm talking about the way I look at other numbers. I'm a big fan of Freakonomics, a really popular book and podcast series. And so much of that is about obviously looking at things like correlation versus causation and Uh, examining our own biases when we interpret data, looking at the numbers from as many different perspectives as possible and getting other opinions, which is the whole discipline of science is to constantly be skeptical, constantly be questioning, constantly be challenging. I think anybody who dismisses the conclusions of science by saying, well, science used to say this 50 years ago, now they're saying this, ha ha, see, science can't be trusted. They've missed the point. I know sometimes that's the response of religion. Well, science got it wrong about the earth being the center of the universe. Science got it wrong about the earth being flat. Science got it wrong about this or that. So we can't trust anything that scientists say today is sometimes the criticism of, of religious people. In my opinion, and I'm sure many others, the response is, well, no, that's exactly how science is supposed to work. It's, a, it's supposed to improve itself. It's supposed to always be learning. It's supposed to be wrong. It's supposed to give us the best conclusion it can with the evidence that we have available to us. And when more evidence surfaces and we get better ways of tracking or more data, or we find a different way to interpret it, 
then we need to change it. Science should always be changing. It should never be settled. It should never be concluded. It should never be done. It should always be open to improvement. And, and in the meantime, until we get those improvements, we need to act as if that's what we have. That's what's available. That's how we understand our world. That's the, the role of science. It isn't to, to lock the door and throw away the key on any one topic. It's to keep us exploring, keep us pushing, keep us challenging, keep us being skeptical. So from where I stand, being skeptical of climate science is being faithful to science and the climate. It's continuing to question. It's continuing to make sure that we've, we're doing it right. And in the meantime, are there steps that we can be taking? I agree. And I find it interesting, too, that like a lot of things, most things, it's because we were like you talk, we're talking about it. It's a worldwide uh, thing that would not only need to uh, solve and agree to solve and agree to change. Uh, and it's huge. Mm-hmm. And so I think it then becomes people having to have diplomacy. So it gets politicized as mm-hmm. well. And oftentimes the natural tendency of big base of the Republican Party is that of being conservative, holding on to things of the past, not wanting things to change and evolve. Yeah, Um, definition of it. Keep it the same. Yes. Mm -hmm. And presumably you find value in that current state or that old state. um, And that's Mm -hmm. what you want to hold on to. And so I think it continues to muddy the waters of the conversation because it goes beyond simply talking about really the nuts and bolts and the facts of of what's happening and how's it happening and what's happening. It really just a lot of assumptions. It seems like if you look back at the, the history of this argument, that just a lot of assumptions just continue to be put on from people that were claiming that humans were the result of climate change cause the cause of it yes Mm -hmm. and as they started to do that and say okay oh and it's all because of our our gas cars and Mm -hmm. us being on petrol oil and oh the solution is to do windmills and to do solar like this is how we're Mm -hmm. like it felt like all of that was kind of jammed into the conversation before even just presenting facts looking at the data looking at the statistics at least from, I think, us as the general public or even picked up in the news cycles, it seemed to be that way. Then it's anybody who's a Republican and especially a conservative Republican. It's just like the gas ranges in the House. Right. That debate. Oh, I want to hold on to my gun. I want to hold on to my gas stove. It's going to lead to X, Y, Z if I allow this to happen. This is always better to have this. There's there's somebody else that's going to be making money for it, whatever the case is. And so it seems like we're not able to even have the conversation where you have one side who thinks they've already kind of figured it out. And then we're talking about resolutions and solutions for the problem while the other side's going, whoa, 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 we don't need to move forward. Everything's been fine. It's been great. We have plenty of it and we're doing great with it. And so then it becomes this conversation, which we're then having two different types, about two different portions of it. Yeah, exactly. And that people are missing each other in the process. Right, right. And we can tackle both of those arguments and those concerns and those conversations. But 
we kind of need to start first at the top and have everybody kind of understand. It's like you can't have a democratic republic government if everybody's not playing by the same right. rules and right. having the same comfort. You have to kind of start your kind of foundation and kind of work up, but it's, it doesn't seem like anybody who wants to join in the conversation is there. So this is all from my perspective, yeah. but I just think that that's why often those clickbait articles are going to grab people because because it being such a massive scale and there's already talk about what the changes need to be to resolve quote this quote unquote problem that is quote unquote caused by humans yeah yeah you just put a little uh, clickbait there and you get definitely lots of people clicking on that because it's become such a polarizing topic and um, political topic yeah and often what happens with these is both sides feel so strongly that it's important that they represent an extreme point of view in order to counterbalance the other extreme point of view. And neither is willing to, uh, oftentimes, especially in these more public-facing debates, neither side is willing to give an inch because they're afraid if I give an inch, then they'll take a mile and, and there won't be any compromise, so I have to go even right, the further. slippery slope concept. Yeah, slippery yeah. slope, danger, and it's so it's I have to stay way over here on this side of the argument because I know my opponent's way over on the other side, and so to counterbalance that, and in the middle is where progress potentially could happen, or one side completely has to win and the other side completely has to lose. Mm-hmm. Historically, is not good for humanity when two conflicting ideals clash in the public sphere and one completely loses. It usually ends up bad for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the push and pull, it's the tension, it's the compromise that generally yields the best results over the long term. And that's hard to do when both sides are using inflammatory rhetoric and are pushing hard and calling names of the other side and not willing to engage or admit that things are different than they thought they were or open to new evidence, all that fun stuff. And there's an article here on USA Today, wrote, which is similar to a lot of the other articles And near the end of it, they have a headline that says, is it too late to do anything about global warming? And the article continues, no. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, record-breaking events will continue until carbon emissions are reduced to zero, said man and scientists with Climate Central. And I had to read that a couple of times. Record-breaking events will continue until carbon emissions are reduced to zero. And I took that literally which is sometimes is, is a fault <laughs> to take things literally to reduce carbon emissions to zero means what we stop breathing, you know, cows stop farting. Right. It's not just factory shut down and nobody drives a car and all combustion engines go away to reduce carbon emissions to zero means the cessation of life. So that to me felt like a really puzzling thing to put in an article. I don't know how we have a conversation unless that claim of reducing it to zero is, well, we know we're not going to get to zero, but we're going to start at zero and then we'll be happy with reduced to 10% or we'll be something along those. That's where my head goes to Mm -hmm. try to figure out why you would say that. And then he goes on to say, the really good news is if we stop burning fossil fuels, temperatures will stop rising. Uh, As if to say that that's one of the goals. We need to stop burning fossil fuels and that in and of itself will pause the warming of the planet. I would suggest we don't know that that will happen. It's possible. I can't say that it won't happen. We don't know conclusively that if we stop burning all fossil fuels tomorrow, that the planet would pause its climate temperatures. And the effects of that, obviously nobody's saying it should happen tomorrow, but the effects of it happening tomorrow would be catastrophic for basically everybody on the planet. And most of all, the poorest of the poor uh, would suffer the greatest. So is it a realistic expectation? Probably not. Are we counting in all the, all the negative side effects of that? 
doesn't seem like it, just seems like lofty rhetoric, that even if I wanted to promote the reduction of the temperatures on the planet, which I'm not advocating for and against, I'm just saying even if I did, I would feel like this type of language was working against me because it, it sets up expectations that are impossible to meet. It says that we have to reduce carbon emissions to zero, which is impossible. And so I don't know how that's helpful dialogue. I don't know how that rhetoric helps. Another part of the, the discussion that I felt made it very difficult to engage with it, if one side is saying, somebody on an intergovernmental panel on climate change is saying, the only way this is solved is to reduce all carbon emissions to zero. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe they're not saying that. Yeah. There's another way to do that that I am not aware of. It just doesn't feel helpful. Yeah, and again, I think it's it's so hard too because of just the absolute scale that we're talking about. Yes, you know, you hear a lot like once you get past 150 people in a group, it really starts to break down the effectiveness of communication and working together. And so, obviously, that's some of the value that gets provided by having 50 states and, mm -hmm. and not just one big country. Potential, yeah. Yeah, you know, another reason I think it also is not only difficult, but also is very political and polarizing is because then now you're taking that even larger and you're needing, because you, you were talking about they, mm -hmm. like even who's on different sides, like, well, who's even leading, like quote unquote, leading the charge or who's representing their sides as right. far as this conversation and how to resolve it. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, probably some of the UN meetings, um, some of those climate meetings that they have, which is essentially leaders of countries and those leaders, it's then going to be their view and their vote on what they're talking about collaboratively doing with other countries is going to be based on what political side is in power of that country at that time that right. they have that meeting. <laughs> yeah, I think that causes this big political push too, because just like that, that was somebody who is commissioned and the current executive branch that's in there mm -hmm. is the Democratic lean left, which has more oftentimes a view of believing in human caused climate change right now. And it's the same thing if it was a Republican conservative. Yeah more leaning executive. Yeah. So wh mm -hmm. whatever that person in that commission, really they're commissioned almost to at that point, find evidence to support yes. what's already being believed. It's like, you know, Uber having their own internal people do an internal investigation to see if there was sexual crimes going on mm -hmm. there. You can't do that. And we should, yeah, we should be suspicious of that, whether it's company investigating its own malfeasance right. or whether it's a government entity that already has an agenda or a bias looking right. for evidence to confirm it. We should be extra suspicious. Doesn't mean they're wrong or their findings are inaccurate. It just means there's yes. reason and I to think be suspicious. With doing that, and it's also hard to not get someone that has ulterior motives to go mm -hmm. in to look at the data to be able to be funded to even have that. Right. So to get some authoritative, respected publication or journalists or uh, investigators or scientists that are have no agenda, no backing um, to be able to just look at it, the data and the facts and just provide it is yeah. very challenging in this space. Yeah. Another complication I want to bring up is in regards to this kind of conversation, because it's so complicated, because it's so vast, because it involves not just multiple states, but multiple countries, the whole world, looking at through the frame of the quadrants as expressed uh, through integral theory, 
And the quadrants are basically four different categories or four different ways or lenses that we can perceive a situation or reality, a way that we can look at it, almost like windows. And if you visualize the quadrants, you could look at it almost like the panes of a window split into four sections. And the upper left section is considered the interior individual or the I quadrant. Uh, The upper right is the individual exterior or the U quadrant or the it quadrant, sometimes it's called. And then the lower left is often referred to as the we quadrant, which would be the interior group space. And then the bottom right is called the its space, which is the group exterior. A topic like global warming is going to have different concerns and different solutions depending on which quadrant that you're viewing that through. And so for the individual interior quadrant, it might be about that internal conviction or that belief or that sense of emotion that I was telling you I don't have much of in regards to this topic to be motivated to say, I need to make a difference. There's a looming threat. I'm morally responsible to do something about that threat and I need to make a change. I need to make a difference. And so then once you have that conviction, you can move over to the upper right, which would be the individual exterior or the it space and say, I need to make changes in my life. I need to recycle more. I need to I ride my bike instead of driving my car. I need a compost. What are the changes that I can do individually that can make a difference in this larger picture? And then we move over to the we space, which would be about bottom left. And now we're talking about an interior group space. And you could then take your conviction and your actions and hope to spread it to your friends and family. You can talk about it on social media. Here's what I'm doing. You can go into business to sell composters or maybe start retrofitting cars to burn uh, grease from fryers instead of gasoline or diesel. You can do things that you think are going to make a difference in the larger community, in the in the space that you can impact because of your conviction, because of those actions. And now it isn't just you doing something. Hopefully other people are joining you and there's a bigger impact that's happening because you're influencing others to make those similar changes. And then the final space, the bottom right, the exterior group space or its space, is a place where policy happens, where mindsets need to be changed, where governments get involved. And that takes a lot longer. That takes a lot bigger process. That takes a lot more motivation and a lot more of the individual eyes and the we's getting together to change the thought process, the policy, the mindset. Something like Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth was much more of an it's based type of movie because the agenda there, the goal or the the place that it was speaking to was to change the perception about global warming and to introduce it to a lot of us uh, back when it first came out. And so the reason I think that's important is because when we're discussing things, we talk about let's fix climate change. If we want to fix climate change, we first have to define in our conversation, which space are we in? Are we talking about, we need to change the hearts and minds of people so that they will act which would be that upper left individual interior space? Or are we talking about large sweeping government policies and getting things like the Paris Accord to happen or to get cities or states to change their legislation on how they handle recycling? Those sorts of things are completely different spaces, require completely different solutions and are addressing different problems. However, just like with anything, whether it's fixing education, if it's fixing healthcare in this country, if it's fixing global hunger, if it's fixing any of these vast problems that we face, we need to understand which space that we're operating in, which space that we're hoping to achieve and, and fix. 
if we want it to get better, all four quadrants need to be engaged and they need to be handled appropriately. So if a person wants to convince somebody else that they need to make a change in their personal life, maybe to start recycling more on upper right quadrant, that's probably going to be done a lot better on the one-on-one or in a small group. It's probably less effective to do it in the, the it space, bottom right quadrant, because that's appealing to too many people. It's too big of a change to ask too many people to do. On the other hand, if I'm recycling, I'm not changing the it space. By me recycling, that's not also, in fact, impacting policies of governments. It's not getting us back into the Paris Accord if if that was the right thing to do or not. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. And I need to recognize that that's what I'm contributing. I'm doing that small thing, that part, and I'm affecting that quadrant. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing everything I could be doing or should be doing or want to do. It just means that's my contribution there. And then I can also contribute in another quadrant as well if I wanted to, if I believed in it and I had the, the motivation and wasn't such a nihilist about everything, <laughs> personally speaking. So I think it's important to bring those kinds of classifications into any conversation like this about remedying a problem to say, okay, this, this type of problem is in this quadrant. So let's find solutions that are appropriate for that quadrant. And if it's in a different one, we look at it from a different perspective. And I think that would go a long way in making changes that were sustainable and people would be less reactive to them if we kept things appropriate to where they belong instead of it's all terrible, it's all awful, all climate scientists are just paid stooges of the government or whatever rhetoric is being thrown around. I'm not saying I agree with those statements. I'm just saying those are things that are thrown around to just dismiss or eliminate the conversation. seems a lot more appropriate and a lot more helpful we can identify our quadrant and then have the discussion based on that. Mm-hmm. I like it. If you can identify that global temperature is rising, has risen at the exact rate of carbon being introduced and that increasing levels and rise of that in the atmosphere, then you can recreate adding carbon into a controlled environment and seeing the temperature rise what else would be in the conversation? Would there need to be a, a catastrophe or, or, or an issue that would have to arise from that happening before there would be communication around resolving it? Uh, are you saying for me personally or for those who don't see any point to, to do anything about I guess climate both. change? Yeah. I'm just thinking like if you're having a conversation about this and they're in different quadrants... Mm-hmm. And if someone doesn't think that there's any reason to go ahead and change it, mm-hmm. then you're not going to have any first discussions to, is there a problem with it? So there's not going to be any funding. There's not going to be any uh, reason for somebody to get invested or stop and read an article when it says the earth may be getting warmer. Mm-hmm. Well, then do you have to say, oh, well, then there's potential issues if the earth is getting warmer. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, there's things that we can do to stop that if these things are all true. So it almost seems like because it's such a large scale and different people are coming at it from different perspectives or from different quadrants, that you could have the argument that you wouldn't even be able to get the conversation started unless there was some fear based Mm. on it. Mm. 
Because why even try to look up any data to see if the earth is getting warmer at all? Right. Why is there any reason to look up to see what's causing that? Because if we look and we think, okay, well, the carbon's here, seems like a very easy conversation to have to say, oh, well, it's getting warmer. That's a bad thing. Humans are causing it. The thing that's causing it is us producing more CO emissions. Mm -hmm. Okay, we cut those CO emissions that we're cutting extra on top of just living. It would be there. But the conversation hasn't gone down that path. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. why it can't is because to start at that fundamental foundation of a level is just having to even spend enough time and enough desire to even look into getting all of the scientific and data and evidence to say, right. Is it getting warmer other than just a cyclical process? Yeah, absolutely. I think that would definitely be a, a roadblock to having constructive conversations for people that see it differently, that don't feel that way. Maybe similarly to what I said earlier about if it was just as widespread that just to pick an example, Jesus is coming back in three years and you better get ready. And if people didn't think that was happening or think that there was a Jesus to come back or Jesus was ever going to come back in that form of a righteous judge on a steed with lightning bolts coming out of his eyes, they wouldn't really engage in that conversation. They wouldn't necessarily yeah. have a reason to. It just seems like if your goal or desire right now in 2023 is to have a productive conversation mm-hmm. about climate change to me, it seems like we missed the shot. Like we Mm. shot our shot and messed up Mm. by going so fast and clumping all those assumptions together. Yeah. And so I guess that's where I'm trying to come with all of this is just that it seems like we're in a very precarious position because the one side that's advocating and has brought up this theory and thought process about the earth getting warmer and that we're causing it layered on all of these assumptions, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, this is how it's looked. It's been laid out and then automatically created a defensive position on the other side to go, well, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's causing a problem. And now we can't unroll all of that back Mm -hmm. and just go back to the data and just the simple facts of, okay, let's take a look at this and dive in a little bit. I really feel that. That really resonates with me as part of something I haven't quite been able to articulate up to this point. Thanks for saying it that way. Yeah. 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 It's not like we're just now in 2023 just going, oh, wow, there's been some studies. People are Mm -hmm. starting to study this. We don't know what this means and what it's going to look like. It's just they shot it and said, this is what that is showing. It's so doom and gloom. I mean, even yeah. what you were talking about with Al Gore, like it, that's why I was trying to say, articulate earlier, it's hard to propose something that is worldwide that we need to change without it being catastrophic. When right. you're just doing just the no assumptions, don't have an agenda. I'm just trying to find data. It's hard to get like the steam going to get yeah. the rolling down the hill momentum. to get some momentum yeah. and, and some people backing for you. And so I think probably the, like what you're saying, the motivation was to propel the, the conversation forward, but it had unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Like you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier with adding in all those layers and assumptions and just assuming that everybody was going to be like, well, yeah, it's because of humans that that's why it's causing it. It made it big catastrophe for us to be able to have a conversation about it now. Yeah. Well said, well said. And that, that resonates not only with where we are, but I think of how my journey has been, we're all engaging at this, I think a little bit differently based even on our age and how old we were when we were introduced to the topic, how well was our brain formed? What was our viewpoint of the world at the time that we first heard about it? I'm in my mid forties. 
somebody in their mid twenties is going to have a totally different experience with the topic yeah. of global warming. Yeah, that's a good point. They've never lived in a world where it wasn't, you know, a dire situation, at least in the front of everybody's the conversation. Mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember a world before it being in the public eye, like it has been for the last decade plus. So I remember first being introduced to it. And like you're saying it for a lot of us, I think we felt like there was a, you know, get on board with this and embrace it 110%. Don't question any of it, or you just are a terrible person. That was sort of the option right out of the gate. You said sort of shot the shot yeah. or tried. And I remember being a person at, who wanted to be open-minded. I know back then I was definitely more uh, concrete, uh, less open to new ideas, more conservative. And at the time I was thinking, okay, well, you know, there's other potential explanations, uh, natural cycles of the planet, solar flare activity picking up shifts in the electromagnetism of the earth that uh, interacts differently with the sun's rays and allows temperatures to rise. The CO2 rising could be a coincidence. It could be correlation, causation. And I had a lot of those questions and I felt like at that time and ever since, like you're saying, those questions aren't welcome for people who are convinced that this is happening. And it's not because I want to say you're wrong or it's because I want to talk people out of it or because I want to dispute. It's simply because I haven't been satisfied yet that those other explanations aren't good explanations. Uh, Those other hypotheses aren't credible. It just makes it hard for me to ever to convert (laughs) if we were going to use that language. I I don't know how I could ever convert to saying, oh, yes, everybody, look, global warming's terrible. It's happening. We're causing it. Here's the things we need to do to change it. I don't see a path to that. On one hand, because of what we talked about earlier, and on the other hand, because there's not an outlet or format and a place to air those criticisms and those skepticisms and have them addressed in a thoughtful way without being shot down or told that I'm something bad, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. pick a name. And it brings me back to that conversation about science and how science works and apply this to anything, vaccine, abortion, any, any controversial topic. But since we're on the global warming topic. The way science is designed to work is a person comes up with a hypothesis, not a theory, (laughs) common misconception. I do it all the time myself. I switch them around. We start with a hypothesis. I think that CO2 production, the increase of CO2 production is causing the earth to abnormally warm in a way that it wouldn't be if we weren't producing so much CO2. That's a hypothesis. And then the way science is set up is we test that hypothesis. We do experiments. We get other people to do experiments. We do everything we can to reproduce the results of the experiments. We do it over and over and over again. We try hard to get a different result with the same experiments. Our peers come in and that's why we have peer review on scientific data. They try to disprove it and you get points if you can show how the person's experiments and tests were done inaccurately or the data isn't the way it should be or if you tweak this one variable, you get a different output. And everything is done to show the hypothesis doesn't line up. And if it's failed, then you say, okay, that was, that wasn't a correct hypothesis. Go back to the drawing board and come up with another one. And maybe it would be in this case, just as an example, CO2 levels increasing combined with another externality, let's say increased solar flare activity. Both of those together are increasing the temperature of the planet over the last 40 years. So then you'd go through, that'd be your new hypothesis. And then you go through and you do the testing again. And and that's the cycle of science until you finally get a result that you're reasonably confident about. Then it becomes a theory. So it goes from a hypothesis to a theory only after lots and lots of testing. And then you have a theory, but it's still not conclusive. It's still not settled. It's still not 100% concrete, locked in stone forever and ever. It's still a theory. It's a theory that's superior to a hypothesis because of the rigors of the testing that it's gone through. 
And yet that theory can still be challenged. It can be expanded upon. It can be tossed out if another theory comes in. And so that process, I think, was demonstrated to have happened for a lot of us. It was just done in such a way that once the theory was out there, we were no longer allowed to question it. We weren't allowed to take our own steps of going through the hypothesis, the testing, the examining ulterior explanations to then eventually arrive at the same theory. So anytime science is done in that way, well, in my opinion, it's not science anymore. It's propaganda. It's, it's an agenda. Somebody's promoting their, their values or something that they want to see happen and calling it science and saying the science is settled and all scientists agree. That's baloney. Yeah. Well, now, the hypothesis and the theory, you know, another way to look at it, too, is like a theory is is something that you've tested and to the best of our knowledge that we currently have right now. Yes. This is what it is. And so just like current evidence we have back in the whatever, 14, 1600s, our sun revolves around the earth until then they were able to come up with new information Mm -hmm. and to be able to do different types of tests to be able to then prove that theory wrong and have a new theory. Come up with a new one. Exactly. A new theory. Yeah. It's the best information that we have, whereas the hypothesis is just an idea without checking it to all of the best information that we have now. Then once you check it with all the best information you have now, which hopefully if it's a very big or consequential theory, like you said, it has double blind peer root Mm -hmm. tests where they're literally their entire job is to try to prove you wrong. Yeah. To try to prove it right. And so those are the values that are added to that. But yeah, I think if there's not money in it, it's hard to then put money towards something to be able to try to find something out without at all any type of motivation. Yeah. And then, then we can't ignore the fact that anytime there's funding tied to an outcome, how could the outcome not be influenced by the funding yep. for any position, which isn't to say the outcome is wrong. It's just much more suspicious or should be considered more suspicious. I think I'd like to just restate that neither you or I is defending man-made global warming, nor are we saying it's a hoax. We're saying we don't know. At least I'll speak for myself. You can say it a little different if you want. I'll say for myself, I'm agnostic about the topic. And even if I did know, I'm not sure I would care or I would be more obligated to care. So I'll add that caveat. And I would like to advocate for more reasonable, more thought out, more science-based discussions about the topic. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree with the last part. Definitely more conversations. As far as my personal position on it, I I would say it's complicated. I think the situation is complicated. I do feel that if there is uh, conclusive concrete evidence that humans are causing it and it's bad for our continued existence... I would have some personal moral conviction hmm. to want to not have that become an outcome. And mm-hmm. I would hope that other people would as well. And I think just like in anything else, especially like Republic democracy, we are in America that let people vote and use their voices on hmm. then what mm-hmm. their moral conviction is and their value and their for it. But I would not be a, not upset if someone else has other other side of it. Right. And with all that being said, I don't think that there is currently what I've read and what I've seen conclusive concrete evidence to support that. And I would love to have more conversation on that mm-hmm. to learn about that. But I, so I think it's a very complicated subject. And I think even trying to do research on it because of the things that we talked about with corruption yeah. uh, makes it challenging in our current state because of they shot the shot. Yeah. And so it's, it's tough to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of unravel some of the alarmism that was accompanying it. 
you almost have to spend a good amount of time at this point right now to really go into, I think, research to dive into it enough to be able to get a, a very clear picture of kind of what we know so far mm-hmm. to be able to make a decision. I think, in my opinion, if someone was going to really do it, it would take quite a bit of work. It would. It would. Probably more work than I'm going to right. put into it. Right, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. think I have enough, definitely don't have enough motivation, time, or energy yeah. to put into that. I think somebody could. You know, there's probably a lot of information I've missed or haven't been shown or haven't seen on the clickbait sure. articles that they've posted. Uh, I'm just saying what I've seen and heard so far. And mm-hmm. we're just talking about what we currently right. have our view on uh, for this whole conversation. But I think most important is just having conversations about things and this yeah. is n- no exception and it's not the end of it. No, I think the more conversation we have about it, uh, it's going to be better for any and all outcome that we all desire. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that as we're having those conversations, if we can acknowledge our own biases, maybe conclusions that we bring to the conversation, not so that we can necessarily dismiss them, or get rid of them just so they can be forefront in the way that we've tried to do through this conversation. Um, none of us can have a bias-free conversation. Never, none of us can have an opinion or a conclusion that isn't based on things we brought to it. That's just being mm-hmm. a human. Uh, I think it's just helpful when we acknowledge it, when we're honest about it with ourselves and with the people that we're talking about, especially if it's something like fear. You mentioned fear earlier. Uh, that tends to be one of the biggest things that motivates us as people to act uh, to, to prevent something bad from happening to us. Science has shown that we're much more likely to take action to prevent something bad from happening to us than we are to make something good happen right. to us. And so if we're come to conclusions or have built theories based on fear, good to name that, good to say it, good to acknowledge it, not that it's something to be ashamed of or to try to get rid of or dismiss or, or anything like that. It's just a, if that isn't acknowledged, I think we're going to miss a lot of fruit in our conversation if we keep that in the shadows. I like it. All right. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>